Hey there, what are you doing? Just looking at birds. I'm your host, Chris. Join me as I interview avid birders to learn more about birds, birding, and those who love both. Today, my guest is Kendall Crozen, the Community Outreach Coordinator for Mission Garden, where we are recording this episode. With a PhD in cultural anthropology, he participated in a number of archaeological and conservation projects. In the early 2000s, he left social science and joined the Tucson Audubon Society where he created the Urban Bird Habitat Program and was involved with rural habit restoration. These days, you're most likely to find him working with plants or looking at birds. Thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. It's great to be with you, Chris. So here at Mission Garden, this morning we saw vermilion flycatcher. I think I saw phenopepla and some gambles quail. What else might visitors expect to see here? We have a lot of roadrunners. It turns out that roadrunners find places to nest at Mission Garden. In fact, there's an old roadrunner nest in a citrus tree just adjacent to where we are here. Hmm. And they find a lot to eat in the garden. When you say a citrus tree in the nest, or sorry, a nest in the citrus tree, they're above ground in an actual tree? Yeah, actually, a lot of the birds here seem to like these big, dense orange trees or grapefruit trees or lime trees, because they can hide their nests in there very effectively. So the roadrunner nests that I've seen have been five or six feet off the ground, oh. well hidden in uh, citrus trees. Hmm. I guess with little knowledge of roadrunners, the first thing I think of, I always see them on the ground. I expected their nest to be somewhere on the ground. I think they do tend to nest relatively low down in thickets and protected places. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, I think roadrunners are among the smarter birds and adapt to different conditions. And they really like the garden here because there's a lot of things to eat. We see them eating um, caterpillars and grasshoppers and beetles, and I've seen them eating mice. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, uh, the, the more typical things people think of is uh, lizards and small snakes in the summer. You know, I, uh, one story I tell when we do bird walks here at the garden or uh, giving tours and we see one of the Roadrunners that lives here, as I, I say, uh, their name is Greater Roadrunner, but I like to call them the Lesser Velociraptor. <laughs> <laughs> because if you read about what they eat and if you watch them hunting, they really look like a little dinosaur. Yes. <laughs> They're quite bold for their size. Even if I approach one, they'll, they'll stare me down and not, not flinch. Yes, indeed. Can you tell us about the last time you went birding? You know, the last time I went birding was, was with some friends, and we went out to uh, Tankaverde Wash, the section of it uh, west of Wentworth Road on the east side of Tucson. It's absolutely one of my favorite places, partly because, uh, well, for several reasons. Partly because there's just a lot of birds there all year round. But also it's a remnant of the historic riparian habitats that we used to have a lot more of here in Tucson. Mesquite, forest, cottonwood and willow trees and ash trees and soap trees all along the wash there and sometimes actually running surface water in that part of the wash and it just makes for a very rich environment. It's a little bit here like Mission Garden. You come in here and you feel that you've gone back in time or that you've shut out, you know, modern life and you're uh, a different place altogether. Yeah. 
I think uh, I'll add another thing, and that's that I, I think of myself as a kind of aesthetic birder. I like places that are beautiful mm-hmm. and that have the native birds that are associated with a beautiful pine forest, a beautiful oak forest, a beautiful lowland riparian forest like Tankaverde Creek. And I'm, I'm much more likely to go to a place like that where I feel at peace and in a really beautiful environment than to, you know, go to a sewage treatment plant <laughs> and hang out, sit by a, a pond in, in a desolate place and watch for some rarity. Although God knows I've done that a lot too. <laughs> when you go to Tanka Verde, what are some of the birds you get to see there? You know, Tanka Verde Wash in the spring is just amazing because if you've got uh, things like northern beardless terranulate and uh, orioles and grosbeaks and you might still have some of the wintering birds like green-tailed towhee and, mm. uh, and then lots of vermilion flycatchers, black phoebes, riparian birds like song sparrow. It's just a, a noisy place with birds. <laughs> and uh, greyhawks uh, oh. nest in that area as, as well. Wow. And summer tanagers. And, and it's just a glorious place in the spring and summer. And, uh, you know, in, in winter... It's within the bounds of the Santa Catalina Mountains Christmas bird count. Mm. And uh, the folks that count along that stretch often find some interesting wintering birds there as well. I'll have to add it to my list of places to bird. When you think back to how you got into birding, when did you first take an interest in it? You know, I I remember back to uh, where I grew up in Southern California, and my mom knew a lot of the names of the birds that were in our our yard there in a a kind of semi-rural area. I didn't really pick up birding, though, until I was on a sea turtle conservation project in northeastern Mexico, and I was around a lot of biologists and, and folks who just knew a lot about the wildlife. And we were at a remote beach there, and there was a, uh, there were a lot of birds. And, you know, one day, one of our jobs was to patrol up and down this beach in ATVs looking for turtle tracks who mm. had come up to nest. And uh, one day I was flying along and an osprey was flying right along with me at exactly the same speed, right over my head. And I thought, I just thought that bird was amazing and gorgeous yeah. and flying along the, the beach there. And I kind of vowed to, um, learn more about birds and when I got back to the to the US I bought a my first pair of binoculars and my first field guide mm-hmm. the National Geographic uh, field guide to North American birds and uh, took up birding and that's been uh, decades ago now that was in the mid 80s hmm. when you think of the birding you've done since can you share with us a memorable encounter you've had with the bird I mean that sounds pretty memorable having an osprey uh, glide alongside you but Another encounter you've had since then, since you've gotten more into birding? Gosh, since I've gotten more into birds, you know, one of, one of my favorite experiences in bird watching is to hear or see a species that I haven't seen before, but that I figure out what it was, you know? Mm. Um, so, you know, sometimes you're with the other birders and they say, hey, that's a, you know, a caracara. And, oh my gosh, I've never seen a caracara before. And that's, that's fun, too. Who doesn't like adding lifers to your list, after all? Sure. Uh, but there was one time when I was uh, along the Santa Cruz River down in the Tubac or Tumacacri area, and I heard a call, and I didn't know what it was, but I was an experienced enough birder at that point to sense that it sounded like some kind of dove. And I, I 
thought about what doves that I knew were around that I've never seen before. And I thought, I wonder if it's a common ground dove. Yeah. And indeed, that's what it was. I finally found it and saw it. And I felt a great sense of accomplishment having guessed what it might be and then had it turn out to be that. Yeah. And those are one of the happier times birding when you discover something new and you expand your awareness by learning about that bird, by seeing it. But you are also getting to be a good enough birder that you kind of guess at least the, roughly the kind of bird it could be from the call. Yeah. So a very satisfying moment there. And then having that feeling, it helps to cement in your memory of some of those traits so that you might identify one in the future based on just a sliver of information. That's right. You know, somebody told me, or I read once, perhaps, that the best way to learn the songs and calls of birds is to actually watch them making those sounds. Mm. Uh, and that way your, your brain is connecting the bird visually with the bird uh, vocalizations. And I think that's really helped me over the years. You know, sometimes birders are a little bit too oriented toward just checking off a new species or new species for the day or a new life or yeah. like, uh, oh, that's a such and such. You know, I'm done. Stop for a minute. Keep watching it. Pay attention to its behavior. Pay attention to the sounds it makes. Pay attention to what it might be eating, where it might be nesting. That just so much expands your um, enjoyment, my enjoyment of birding sure. anyway, and the feeling of accomplishment of having learned something new. Yeah, I agree. I always appreciate when I see a bird that I want to photograph or enjoy, I'll take a few pictures and I'll put my camera away and watch it for a minute and see it hop around the bush or the tree and watch some of those behaviors. And as a new birder, I was so focused on ID different aspects of the actual bird, visual aspects that you might pay attention to to identify it. But then I found over time, just knowing that this bird likes to go to these kinds of bushes or trees helps so much in finding them in the future or identifying them. Right. You know, um, it can really impress your friends and neighbors if you, <laughs> <laughs> if you uh, are with them and you hear a bird and you say, oh, that's, that's a such and such. I know that it likes this particular vegetation and I know that sound. Yeah. Um, so if I know the name of a tree and the bird's name has a couple adjectives, I can sound very impressive. And if you're <laughs> with a really, really good birder, you'll notice that often he or she is just walking along hearing things yeah. and, and uh, writing them down or putting them into eBird without you know, the need to see every little thing. Yeah. When you think back before that trip you did with all the biologists on the beach looking uh, for the sea turtle tracks... If you go back further, what is your earliest memory of a bird? Well, I have a favorite story about that. You know, I vaguely knew that my mom knew some of the names of birds around our yard, but um, she must have been into birds a little bit because at our kitchen table we had placemats at one point, and I'm thinking I'm probably six or eight years old at this point. We had placemats that uh, were maybe Audubon Society placemats or Roger Torrey Peterson placemats. Anyway, each placemat had a different bird on it, a picture of a bird on it. I was sitting there eating breakfast at our breakfast table, which looked out onto our front porch through these big full-length windows. And the placemat I had in front of me had Western tanager on it, hmm. male and female. And at that moment, a male western tanager landed on the railing of the porch outside <laughs> of our house. And that was the first realization I had that there were different kinds of birds with different kinds of traits. And I, I looked down and I looked at that bird and I thought, oh, 
I get it now. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's one of those. <laughs> and mean. although I didn't become a birder per se for uh, uh, for a long time after that, I think that was a, an experience that contributed later to my interest in birds. Sure. Now let's move on to our bird segment, where my guests have a chance to share a bit about a bird of their choice. And for this episode, Kendall will tell us about a bird that is pretty common here in the Southwest, yet every time I see one, I can't resist taking a few more pictures of them. I'm talking about the verdant. I usually see these birds hopping around inside thicker bushes. Where are they usually found here at the garden? Yeah, they forage around all through the garden in the fruit trees, in our native trees, and some of the bigger shrubs like wolfberry and, and graythorn and... Um, and desert hackberry. When it comes for uh, to spring and, and for time to nest, they seem to prefer to build their nests in some of the native trees like Palo Verdes hmm. here and uh, some of the mesquite trees. For our listeners who might not be familiar with Palo Verde trees, can you compare them to another tree they might know out on the East Coast or in other parts of the U.S.? Gosh, what would they be like? Or as far as size? Yeah, they're uh, a lot like a lot of the drought-tolerant desert trees here. They don't get super huge. Um, mm-hmm. The blue Palo Verde, which is a little bit bluer green color, and of course they're called Palo Verde because Palo Verde literally means green stem or green branch, mm-hmm. because they have chlorophyll right in the bark of the tree, mm. so um, they can go on producing energy from the sun at times when they may not have a lot of leaves mm. on. And then there's a foothills Palo Verde that uh, is a little sh- smaller and shrubbier that grows up away from the bottomlands and up in the desert slopes and things. And they're thorny and rigid trees uh, with uh, very small uh, leaves, tiny leaflets. And they do provide a good structure for a lot of um, birds to build nests on. And of course, verdants build uh, very interesting nests, kind of roundish or globular shaped nests, much like our cactus wren nest, if you've seen one, mm. but smaller. And like a cactus wren nest, it's, they don't nest on top of it. They nest inside of it. Okay. Uh, and there's a little tiny opening uh, at the bottom of one end of the nest. I actu- I'm actually watching a verdant over there, and one of the fig trees just flew by, <laughs> which is fun to see. They are here all year round. Uh-huh. Um, and it is one of the birds uh, that we see here in the garden very frequently. It's actually one of the birds, especially when I worked at the Tucson Audubon Society and tried to promote uh, bird-friendly yards, sustainable bird-friendly yards with native plants. I'd like to say that it was one of my favorite birds to introduce people to because a lot of people have never seen them or paid attention to them. They're small and fast-moving and and all, although they have some brilliant chestnut red patches on their wings and a kind of a dull yellow face, they're, they're mostly gray as they move past you. Mm-hmm. And so you might not uh, pay much attention to them, but uh, they're all around us here in Tucson. They've adapted very well to suburbia and to backyard trees. All you have to have in your neighborhood is a few of the native mesquites, palo verdes, ironwood trees, and big shrubs like the ones I mentioned, wolfberry, desert hackberry, and things like that. They love those things. Mm. And uh, they'll be around your yard. And they're fascinating birds to watch. They move quickly. They, they hunt for little insects and spiders and things. Although if you watch them, you'll sometimes find them... They're, they're known as an insectivorous bird. Okay. Uh, which, and most of their diet is supposed to be insects. 
But if you watch them closely, uh, you'll find them eating other things as well. And here in the garden, like right now, this time of year, uh, there's some old figs and pomegranates and things way high in the trees that we never picked. And you'll see them sticking their heads in these cracked open pomegranates and, yeah. and eating fruit. And it's possible they're finding some insects in there too, but um, mm-hmm. I think they'll take fruit pretty often when As they well. can. And it's one of the non-hummingbird species that often off comes to hummingbird feeders. Mm-hmm. The Gila woodpecker will do that too. Yeah. But if you have a hummingbird feeder in your backyard, you may well see a verdant coming and and trying to get its tongue down in there and get some of the sugar water. Yeah, I have seen that a few times, but I think it is difficult because most hummingbird feeders are designed for a bird with a longer bill. Right, right. It's more difficult. Or a longer tongue. (laughs) When you see these birds, do you typically see them alone in small groups? How how might you see them? I usually see verdans in uh, mated pairs Mm -hmm. uh, or family groups in the spring and summer. Once they've hatched out some young, I often see them feeding young here in the in the garden. Mm-hmm. A rich garden space like Mission Garden is uh, a wonderful place for a lot of birds to find a lot of foods. You know, we have not only a lot of the native plants here that attract our native small insects, but uh, a lot of the fruit trees have little insects on them as well. Mm. Things that we never see, insects that never bother us, but that uh, verdans and other birds, warblers, for example, will uh, glean off of leaves or stems or, or things like that. So they find a lot to eat here and they build their nests. And walking around the garden, like when we do our monthly bird walks here, which is on the second Thursday of the month, mm-hmm. you'll see a verdant in one corner of the garden and then you'll see a pair of verdants in another corner of the garden. And, and you'll usually see them in small you know, family groups or pairs, but this four-acre garden seems to have enough habitat for them that there may be three different nesting pairs um, oh. around the garden. Okay. When you talk about family, how large are their clutch sizes? I'd have to look that up. I suspect that a lot of birds that size have three to five eggs or so. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the funny thing about verdans is you never see their eggs because they're hidden inside that a round nest that has that interior space. Yeah. So I can't say that I've ever seen a, a verdant yeah. egg. Uh, but you certainly see they're young after hatching. And uh, I noticed this working for Tucson Audubon, but still today, that uh, one of the summer bird identification challenges in this region mm. is when you see young uh, verdants, immature verdants, that are just out of the nest... Um, and they're all kind of a brownish gray. Mm-hmm. They don't yet have that chestnut patch on the wing or the yellow face. Yeah. Um, so there was one spring here where we had Lucy's warbler nesting in the garden mm-hmm. as well, and also Bell's vireo. And there were a lot of little young birds flying around that were kind of uh, gray-ish. Yeah. Uh, and it was it was a challenge to separate them. Uh, so so that's a, a fun. You know, um, not everyone might call it fun, but <laughs> it's a it's a nice ID challenge to yeah. notice the subtle differences between these species when, when they're, they're young. young. Hmm. As a small songbird, what kind of predators might they worry about? Well, you know, I think it's possible that their nesting strategy, having these uh, nests with 
very uh, small interior spaces and a very small opening to get inside protects them from some of those predators. I would guess that probably Cooper's hawks mm -hmm. are an important uh, predator. Because we have so many birds here at Mission Garden and in the surrounding a mountain desert uplands, pretty common to see a Cooper's hawk swoop through the garden. Sure. But there are other predators that will eat nestlings and uh, and eggs mm -hmm. and uh, things like uh, I think some of the lizards will do that some of the snakes but I think they're pretty well protected from that because yeah. of the way they nest and also we talked about the lesser velociraptor the the, the greater roadrunner um, they'll eat just about anything they can find so they'll definitely take eggs and nestlings out of nests uh, yeah. so I would think that would be uh, a danger to the verdans as well but again their nesting strategy probably protects them pretty well yeah as you see them around the garden are there any other behaviors you've noticed about them when you observe them you know verdans are one of the easiest birds to study I think especially in spring and summer where they're inhabiting a nesting territory. Their nest might be in your yard or nearby, somewhere in your neighborhood. And they're very numerous uh, in most neighborhoods. It's easy to find them. And just like we said before, not just to tick them off your list of birds you've seen that day, but to just go on watching them. You'll see their foraging behavior, how quickly they move and scan and look under leaves and on twigs and, and then move on and look and then nab a little tiny um, uh, caterpillar or a little tiny spider or a little tiny insect of some sort. I also noticed a few years ago in my own yard, in the fall or maybe early winter, a funny buzzing sound. Hmm. And I could not figure out if it was an insect or if it was a um, some kind of bird that I hadn't seen around my yard before. And I yeah. finally tracked tracked it down and it was a verdon making this funny buzzing sound and it was a, a vocalization that I had never heard before and that I, I didn't really see represented in you know in some of the field guides or in some of the um, things like iBird that has recordings of its um, sure. songs and calls but just because I was paying attention and not just saying oh verdant go on to the next bird I realized that it was these verdants, and I've heard them now in the fall and winter at Mission Garden mm. as well, making this funny little buzzing sound. So I want to research that more and see if others have noticed that and have tried to catalog, you know, what the function of that particular call. They have a lot of other calls, of course, and in uh, yeah. as early as February and at least March, they'll be making their, their song. which is always a harbinger of spring for me. Yeah. Uh, again, because these birds are so numerous around town, you'll always hear that as uh, the, we're coming out of the Sonoran Desert winter into our, our early spring. Hmm. For this last portion of the episode, can you tell us a little bit more about Mission Garden? What are some reasons that birders might visit Mission Garden? Well, we are an eBird hotspot. Um, so if you use eBird, you'll easily find us. Uh, you do have to pay attention to the fact that we're not open all the time. We're, our hours uh, right now in the winter are 8 a.m. to 2 p.m., Wednesday through Saturday. But uh, a reason to come here, uh, there's several reasons to come here. It's a great place to find a lot of birds. We've seen over 90 species hmm. now 
around the garden. Many of them nest here in the spring. Mm -hmm. uh, not only the verdans, but the roadrunners, the quail, uh, house finches, thrashers. Pyroloxia has nested here. Mm. Uh, Curve-billed thrasher, mockingbird. When they're nesting here, you know, they'll always be around. Uh, yeah. They may go forage outside of the garden for a while, but easy to find birds and easy to practice your birding skills up close with some of these species that you'll find around Tucson. Yeah. Another reason that really interests me is that as we've recreated this historic garden, and as I was telling you before, we've got garden plots representing all the major eras of our agricultural history here for thousands of years, Native American crops, crops brought by the Spanish, crops grown in the Mexican period, crops grown by Chinese farmers, and, and much, much more. And because of the diversity here of crops and native plants, there's just a whole wide variety of, of birds here to see. And all year round, too. I just earlier was hearing white-crowned sparrows, which mm. have arrived for the winter, singing in the garden. Um, so it's a fascinating place. And, you know, where I was going with that was that this recreated garden, I think, is different from anywhere else in Tucson. And it recreates an agrarian or agricultural ecosystem that formerly was all throughout this big floodplain in Tucson that stretches here from the base of A Mountain all the way over to downtown and north along the Santa Cruz River up to where the Rito and the Cañada del Oro come into the Santa Cruz River and then upstream along the Rito too. There was a lot of habitat there hmm. and much of that habitat is lost through groundwater pumping and drying up our surface water resources. But yeah. that kind of environment is back here in Tucson. So the birds that you see, the mix of birds and other species of animals as well here in the garden is beginning to represent again the mix of species that would have been very common here all throughout Tucson, yeah. throughout, at least throughout this big agricultural and riparian floodplain. So we're recreating agricultural history, but also some of the ecological history here. So for example, I think uh, some of the birds that would have been much more common in Tucson historically, because we find so many of them here at Mission Garden, are the Gamble's quail. Mm. Turn out to really like this garden and nest here and find a lot of things to eat here. Uh, the roadrunners, the verdans, and just a mix of other species that I think is a kind of a historically accurate representation of the bird, or it's at least beginning to be, uh, of the birds that would have been here historically on the floodplain of the Santa Cruz River. Mm. So with this concentration and the variety of these crops all in one place when they used to be spread throughout the city or in that region, the range you mentioned, now they're all concentrated here and we can get that same concentration of birds because they get crops that they couldn't find anywhere else in the city. One of the fascinating things that might have been quite common historically but that I'd never seen before I came to Mission Garden and before these big orange trees and grapefruit trees and pomelos and got so big was that it turns out that during the winter, the gambles quail at night like to gather in some of those big citrus trees, mm. perhaps to stay warm yeah. over the winter night, but also perhaps to hide from predators. I'm just guessing, but it yeah, yeah. seems reasonable. And uh, the way I know that they do this is that the leaves around the bottom of the tree 
often in the winter have a lot of bird poop streaming down on them. Yeah. And I, at first, when I saw that, I didn't know what bird it was. But then I'd get to the garden early in the morning and I'd walk by those trees and the, and the quail would flush out of the tree. Mm. And I figured, ah, that's what's going on in there. They're spending the night in these trees. Huh. So that's probably a natural behavior that would have happened in, in certain uh, native trees historically. Yeah. Uh, but they really seem to like the, uh, the orange trees as well. So those are some reasons that birders might come here because of the diversity of plants and fruits. But what are some other things that are going on at the garden? There's just a lot of things going on here. You can just walk around and see a wonderful reenactment of fascinating uh, historic agriculture. But uh, especially on Saturdays, we often have classes or special walks like our monthly bird walk, our monthly uh, healing herb walk. It talks a lot about the uh, healthy properties of some of the uh, things we grow, including some of the uh, native herbal plants, uh, medicinal herbs. Um, There's an archaeology day once a month where you can come and do hands-on activities uh, with ancient technologies we just had a class yesterday about drying squash, a traditional mm. way of preserving squash. We have big festivals too. Going through the year, we'll have a, uh, we'll have a big Native American arts festival in February around gem show time. And April, we'll participate in the citywide Agave Heritage Festival, mm-hmm. where uh, we're trying to publicize the usefulness and the heritage as well of agaves and how they can be Uh, eaten and used for the fiber and their leaves can be used to make twine and different things Hmm. and how important they were historically especially to the Hohokam people. In May we'll have a big wheat harvest festival uh, where we recreate what was called the San Isidro festival when uh, people starting in the Spanish colonial period and into the Mexican period would have harvested the winter wheat on the saint's day for uh, San Isidro, or Saint Isidore, the patron saint of farmers and laborers. Hmm. And we know from historical records that there was a big festival that day for the saint, uh, but also everybody could come together and harvest the wheat. And we, yeah. we do that with traditional tools and techniques. So that's fascinating. And there's a variety of other festivals all throughout the year. One for the quince harvest, one's for the pomegranate harvest. This spring, for the first time, we're going to have what we call a citrus celebration to celebrate the fact that a lot of the oranges and grapefruits and limes and pomelos and things like that ripen. Meyer lemons we have too. Ripen mm. in the in the winter in about February. Yeah. With a background in anthropology and a number of years with the Tucson Audubon Society, how did you get into the role of community outreach coordinator here at Mission Garden? Well, you know, I knew about the plans to create the Tucson Origins Heritage Park, uh, which was to include this mission garden, as early as about 2003 or 4, when one of the planning processes for it was going on. There was a committee of people uh, working on it for one of the architectural design companies in Tucson. And a couple of us from Tucson Audubon were asked to be subcontractors in that process and to think about things like sustainability and habitat and how the Tucson Origins Heritage Park should be designed. And there was also architects and planners and historians involved in that process. 
And then I continued working at Tucson Audubon for several years after that, and I knew that the garden was actually being built and developed. And I came to a point where I made a transition in 2017 from working at Tucson Audubon Society to being here at the garden a lot. I was hired as the outreach coordinator, partly because of my history with some of the planning uh, process for the garden, but also because of my experience working in uh, small to medium-sized nonprofit organizations and the kinds of things that uh, you have to do to recruit volunteers, recruit docents, do member services, and to just create a uh, welcoming atmosphere for visitors to a nonprofit like this. And also I had that anthropology and archaeology background. So I, I like to say that I'm just so fortunate to be paid to work in a place like this because it just happens to be the place that represents pretty much all of my main interests in life. Hmm. Ethno-history, archaeology. We're sitting on a big archaeological site here, actually, the Clearwater Archaeological Site that goes back all these thousands of years. And then it's a beautiful place, and I've always liked gardening, so it's a gardening environment. And then there's the wildlife here. Not only all those birds that we talked about, but I've had trail cameras out in the garden for some time, and I pick up pictures of things like raccoons and bobcats mm. coming over the wall of the garden at night and hunting around for, for <laughs> food in the garden, particularly in our recreated uh, acequia or canal that we have, which is a fascinating thing in itself, this recreation of one of the historic canals that would have come from the wetland upstream through the floodplain here to irrigate crops. It's got little Gila topminnow fish in it, an endangered species of fish, and has brought a lot of other life to the garden. Because anywhere you have water in the desert, aquatic insects and dragonflies and damselflies and frogs and all kinds of other things um, yeah. show up. All my main interests in life are represented here in this little garden. <laughs> and so uh, there's something uh, really wonderful about it for me. And I think a lot of people enjoy coming to the garden and experiencing those things as well. Yeah. What does a typical day look like for you here? Well, you know, I get here about 7.30 and I check in with other members of our staff. I look at the calendar to see what uh, might be happening that day and Today I had this interview scheduled, but also <laughs> <laughs> we had a, a orientation for new volunteers happening. Mm -hmm. uh, we have some uh, folks in our Chinese garden, mm -hmm. including a gardening group from the Tucson Chinese Cultural Center, which helps with the Chinese garden. And so, and then I go open up the front gate around eight and set up our little garden shop. And uh, one of our docents or one of our retail volunteers come in, and I welcome them and and get them started with our uh, point-of-sale software and uh, let them know what uh, special events might be happening in a given day. And, and then a lot of times, because we have so much uh, volunteer help here, I can go and check my email and uh, help to plan some events that are coming up, check in with people who want to rent the garden for a wedding or a memorial or just a meeting. Sure. We've got a, members of the board of directors of a nonprofit coming in here in about a week to have a day-long hmm. meeting, so we rent out the garden for those kinds of things. But, you know, with all of that activity as the garden has grown and all of uh, my expanding responsibilities as outreach coordinator, I often find time at least once a week to spend uh, at least a half an hour walking around the garden 
and doing a, a checklist, an eBird checklist mm. um, with my eBird app on my phone, just noting the birds that are in the garden, if it's nesting season, which one of, ones of them are nesting. So we've got a pretty good record now in, in eBird of the uh, diversity of birds here in the garden and their abundance and seasonality. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's a little you know, bir- bit of bird data that I feel that has been my special addition to uh, what's going on here in the garden. Yeah. It sounds like in this role, you're able to practice or enjoy so many of your interests in one place. Is there anything you particularly look forward to when you come to work? Wow. Well, you know, we've got a new volunteer that was just telling me that she moved here from Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And this is her kind of happy place or her green place because she didn't really know much about the Sonoran Desert when she moved to Tucson. And, and she seems to love it here. But she also harkens back to her time in Minnesota and the uh, orchards and fruit trees and forests there. And she comes here to, to the garden and finds an environment that's more like that than anywhere else, I think, yeah. in Tucson. And I experienced the same thing. I just... You know, actually, it's a little bit psychologically, I think, like birding is for me. Birding is that experience that I hope everybody finds somewhere in life, an activity where you're doing it and your mind clears of uh, your concerns, your anxieties, your preoccupations, and you're just kind of one. It's kind of a flow experience. just... You're listening, you're watching, and nothing else matters for a little while. And the garden is like that sometimes, you know, because I work here. Yeah. A lot of things matter, and I I have to pay attention to those most of the time. But there's other times when I just look around me and I say, wow, they're paying me (laughs) to be here in this beautiful place. And, and, you know, we're recording this under a ramada that's surrounded by fig trees and grapefruit trees and pomegranate trees and quince trees and a pear tree even. And it's really not like anything else I can find anywhere else in Tucson. And it's, it's a similar experience, just, wow, I'm, I'm really lucky to be here and it makes me feel good. You know, you know how they say when, uh, if you have a dog and when you pet your dog, it lowers your blood pressure and relaxes you. This garden does the same thing for me. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. Yeah, this was a good location that we kind of stumbled down to. Uh, We'd initially started to set up near the chicken coop, but then the rain started pouring unexpectedly and we came to this ramada. So you might hear some of that rain in the background and you may not hear as many birds because they've been coming in and out as the rain comes in and out. As you have described, even though I know very few of these trees, as you described the different trees, I've been able to make out some of the fruit on some of these trees and identify them. And it is interesting for somebody like me to see such a diversity of fruit and plant life just in such a small area, just like you said, right around us, right around this table. Before we go, is there anything else you would like to share about Mission Garden? Well, you know, if you're from the East, you may be regretting missing those fall colors that uh, the maple trees and other trees in the east are famous for. Um, but there are fall colors in Tucson. They're a little more subtle. Uh, but if you look for them, they're there. And they happen to be all around us here in this ramada. The fig yeah. trees are 
Uh, leaves are turning a kind of yellow-golden color. Uh, the leaves on some of the other trees, the quince trees, turn a beautiful golden color. There's some desert cotton, a native cotton plant over there. It's turning a beautiful, uh, the leaves are turning a beautiful red color. Yeah. And there's other subtle native plants in the Sonoran Desert that do turn color at this time of year. We've got um, leaves building up on the ground that are falling from the trees. Um, so that's, I think, not to be missed. And the garden is um, different every month with the, and, and people come to Tucson and they say, you don't have seasons here. Well, we certainly do have seasons <laughs> here. And, and the people at the Desert Museum will tell you that we have five seasons here. The um, winter for a couple months, then spring for a couple months, and then the, the hot, dry four summer in May and June. And then the monsoon, the wet summer, the humid summer in, in the middle of the summer, and then fall. And all of these um, uh, seasons are different here, accentuated by the fact that we have fruits and vegetables and grains and grapes and things like that maturing and being harvested all year around. And that adds to the, the sense of seasonality here. You can come almost once a week and see changes, subtle changes from mm -hmm. week to week here in the garden. So come and experience seasons, come and experience history, come and experience birds and other living things here in this rich four-acre garden, and I, I don't think you'll regret it. I agree. What's really funny is right as you were saying that, we've been sitting here, you know, for the duration of this interview, and I've been staring at these trees behind you and seeing the leaves on the ground, and it didn't even occur to me that, yes, this is something you don't see in many places of Tucson. The piles of leaves on the ground, the change in color, and now that you called attention to it, that is definitely a treat that you do not enjoy in many other places in Tucson. Well, I'd like to thank Kendall for joining us today, and I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed the podcast, please follow or subscribe. And while you're there, please leave a rating or review to help more people discover the podcast. If you'd like to tell me what you think of the podcast or just say hello, you can email me at chris at lookingatbirds.com. For pictures of some of the birds discussed here, including the Verdon, please check out at Looking at Birds Podcast on Instagram. And until next time, keep looking at birds. Mm -hmm.